Okay, well, we are going to continue our study today in the book of Galatians, and we are starting a new chapter, Galatians chapter 2. We're just going to take 10 verses today, which you're like, 10 verses, that sounds really simple. Uh, well, it's not. <laughs> it's actually, uh, uh, Paul's kind of the king of run-on sentences. It's one of those uh, paragraphs that if you just read it all at once, it's like, whoa, so many things. Are, are happening here and, and so many commas and parentheses and what's what's happening but the lesson that we're learning in these 10 verses is really simple it's this and I'll just summarize it in advance Christians don't always agree on everything but apostles do if you notice all of the divisions and things in Christianity all of the things that we argue and debate about and all of the reasons why we have all of these different denominations and things like that it's because Christians don't agree on everything but we all believe that apostles do agree about everything. And so it's our job then as believers, it's our obligation, if we want to be uh, someone in the Christian community that causes unity and peace, then we want to change what we think and adhere to what the apostles initially taught. That's our goal today. That's our goal today. And, and that is why Paul has written the book of Galatians. It's because Christians weren't agreeing on everything back then, just like Christians don't agree on everything today. And they need instruction from those apostles that we can have unity. And here's one of the issues that they disagree on uh, today and, and disagreed on back then. Are we saved by grace or not? Right? Are we, are we saved by the grace of God or not? We either are or we aren't. So are are we saved from the wrath of God through the grace provided for us in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus? Or are we saved from the wrath of God because of all of that plus something that we do? That is an issue that they started debating almost immediately, right out the gate. When Christianity started to flourish, they started talking and debating about these things. Are we saved by grace or is grace something that we need to earn? Isn't it funny that I can even say it that way and it makes sense? That's because sometimes in our culture, when we think about the word grace and what it means, we can talk about it as something that can be earned. You might think about uh, a phrase like this, hey, I, I'm gonna stay, I'm gonna stay late at work all this week because I wanna stay in my boss's good graces. Right, we talk about grace like that as if we can obtain or maintain those good graces Determine, you know, by, by something that we do. But if we have to earn grace, it no longer is grace. It's, it's no longer grace, right? Because grace is unmerited favor. By definition, it's something you cannot earn. It's undeserved. Grace is only something that can be gifted to you, outside of yourself, freely given to you. It's not something you can work for. That's the issue that Paul's trying to address in not just Galatians, but many of the letters he wrote in the New Testament. And he's really trying to help people figure this out because they were wanting to know, how is it, now that Jesus has done what he's done, how is it that I can have a right standing before God? How is it that I can be justified? We know God is perfectly holy and righteous. How is it that someday I can stand before him and be accepted by him? Is it something that Jesus has earned for me and gives it to me by faith? Or is it something that I have to earn, that I have to do something in order to get in those good graces? 
um, as I mentioned earlier. So one thing's for certain, it can't be both, can it? It can't be both. It has to be one or the other. And so Christians have been debating this since that first century. And so you and I got to decide, what, what are we going to believe? Where are we going to stand? Well, I want to stand on, these, on the side of the apostles. Anytime there's a debate within Christianity, and there are many, as I mentioned earlier, I want to examine both sides, and I want to see which side adheres to the teachings of the apostles. Which side adheres to the teaching of Scripture? Because that's the side I want to be on, because we believe Scripture is the authority that informs our beliefs, right? I don't want to believe something that contradicts what the Word of God says, right? And so Paul is writing this letter to help us come to the right conclusion. He's writing this letter in Galatians practically for the sole purpose of defending the gospel of grace. That's what he preached. I mean, he's, it's a no-doubter. He preaches a gospel of pure grace, he is writing a defense of it over and over and over in the New Testament. Just pick any New Testament book of the Bible, and you can see uh, Paul, any, any letter that he wrote, and, and you'll see a defense of the gospel of grace. And so it's under attack today, though, just like it was then. And here's the people who attack the gospel of grace. It's, it's probably not what you would initially think. When I think of, of the biggest opponents or enemies of the gospel of grace— uh, I'm inclined th to think that those are the people that are atheists. Those are the people who just want to squash Christianity. Those are the people, uh, the, the, the biggest threat are the people who just don't believe any of this stuff. But when you get into the Bible, you learn that actually it's religious people who often fight and attack people who believe in this gospel of grace. And that's the same case today. It, most of the people who attack this gospel of pure, unmerited grace are religious people. It's people who call themselves Christians. Those are the people who attack the gospel of grace most often. And that's exactly what was happening in Paul's context. Now remember, he's writing to Galatians. Galatians is not a city, it's an area. There's several churches within this region known as Galatia. One of those churches is Antioch. We studied that in the book of Acts. Antioch was one of the first Christian churches, and they had an explosion of Christian faith there. And at Antioch, that is the first place on the planet Earth in which anyone was ever known as a Christian. Like we are known as Christians today. Well, the first people to ever be known as Christians went to Antioch Church there. Okay? And so some of those Christians, some of those, and I, I, maybe I should use Christians in air quotes now. Some of those Christians were the ones who were attacking the gospel of grace. So Paul's writing this letter to defend the genuine Christians from the false brothers. He was writing this letter to help defend and instruct the people who really did believe in a gospel of grace against the people who said they liked Jesus but taught against the gospel of grace. Does that make sense? There's a lot of Christians there that would say, yeah, man, we're Christians, Jesus, absolutely. We love Jesus. That's the way to go. Yep. But if you want to be in a right standing with God, you've got to do something else on top of what he did. Matter of fact, more specifically, they would say you need to get circumcised like a Jew. If you really want to be saved, you need to uh, believe what Jesus did, plus you need to do something else. And circumcision was what they wanted you to do. That's a tough sell. Pretty tough sell. Those people drove Paul crazy. He, he had nicknames for him. He would call them the Judaizers. He would call them the circumcision party. And here's the other thing he would call them. 
false teachers. Man, Paul's such a meanie. He called them false teachers because that's what they were. They were teaching things that were false. And so he was defending the gospel. Here's what they would do. Those false teachers would rise up in churches after Paul was gone, and they would say, hey, don't listen to that Paul guy. He's not even a real apostle. You've, you have to add a work of salvation or it really doesn't count. The other apostles, if they were here, they would agree with us and not Paul. Well, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2 that we're studying today is addressing that very last point that they would teach against. They would try to say, if the other apostles were here, they would take our side. Paul's like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm going to spend 10 verses addressing, addressing what you just said. If they were here, they would side with me. Let me tell you about a time in which I was hanging out with the other apostles and this exact issue came up. Here's how it all went down. That's what we're studying today. Just 10 verses, 10 verses of run-on sentences. If there's anything that Paul couldn't care less about more than circumcision, it's our grammatical rules. So if you're an English teacher, Paul says, I don't care. I'll put a comma wherever I want and parentheses wherever I want. It's hard to read, but he just writes down like how he talks. So I'm going to break it up in, in little sections, okay? It makes it a little easier to digest. Here's verses 1 and 2. We're picking up right after Paul's, he's finishing up his testimony, and now he's saying, let me, let me tell you about a time in which we talked about this issue of circumcision. It says, then after 14 years... I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. See what he's saying there? I went and hung out with the apostles to match up everything that I've been preaching with what they've been preaching to making sure it was the same thing. So he's going there. It says after 14 years, Paul was a ministry machine. He's doing so many different things, but there's 14 years that have gone by here in which he is in Tarsus or in uh, Cilicia where he's from, okay? And, and after or in, in the midst of those 14 years, he ends up doing ministry all over the place, planting churches, helping established churches, so on and so forth. And one of his partners in crime whenever he's doing this is a man named Barnabas. His name means son of encouragement. He, he's a very uh, encouraging guy by name, and it, he really was. He had a really important role in the ministry of the apostle Paul, and here's what it was. He was the guy who vouched for Paul. Some, somebody needed to vouch for Paul. Why? Because his testimony is pretty nasty, isn't it? I mean, we remember studying his testimony last week. Paul literally, before those 14 years, before his conversion, uh, at the beginning of those 14 years, he was the guy who went from town to town and looked for Christians, drug them out of their homes, and took them to jail. He's making their life a living hell. He's trying to kill Christians. That's what Paul did before he was a Christian. He persecuted Christians. And so after he became a Christian, it was really helpful that he had a guy like Barnabas, an encouraging guy like Barnabas, to encourage others to be okay with Paul. He was kind of like, a, he almost acted like kind of a, a mini forerunner for Paul. He would show up and say, hey, he's cool now. Uh, Paul's not going to try to uh, decapitate you or take you to jail or anything like that. Uh, trust me, trust me. And they're like, okay, well, we know and trust Barnabas. I, 
I guess we can trust Paul. Are we safe? And Paul, Barnabas would be like, yes, you're, you're safe. And here's one of the reasons, I love this tidbit of information. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna, I got one rabbit trail just so we can appreciate his ministry at Antioch Church. How did the Christians get to Antioch? You ever just wonder that? The, the, the way, because Paul did not plant the church at Antioch. Barnabas actually pastored there for a while, and it became so big that he had to go get help. And so I, and when it exploded, oh, man, I need help shepherding all of these people. Who am I going to get? Oh, I know a guy. I know a guy from back in Tarsus. I'm going to get Paul. Well, Paul would be a really hard sell at Antioch. Because the reason that there are Christians in Antioch in the first place is because of the bad Paul. The reason they are at Antioch is because the Christians there used to live in Jerusalem. But they were being persecuted so badly in Jerusalem that they fled to Antioch. And when you're reading in Acts chapter 9 about Paul persecuting the church and stuff like that, you read, and, and you read earlier in Acts when Stephen is martyred, he, he's, a, he's a Christian who's stoned to death, and Paul's like applauding his death and things like that. It says after they martyred Stephen, many of these Christians fled to the area of Galatia. That's why they're there. They were running from Paul. And so now Barnabas here, 14 years later, is looking for a guy to help him do ministry in Antioch. Oh, I know a guy. Let's get Paul. He's awesome. He brings Paul to the very people who, used, who ran away, who had, to, who had to like uproot their lives in Jerusalem and ended up in Antioch. And he brings them Paul. Yeah, you're going to need to vouch for Paul. Like this guy. Hey, guys, I, I hired a new associate pastor of Antioch Church. You might remember him. He imprisoned your family and killed some of your friends. It's Paul. Remember that guy? He's cool. He's cool now. He's like only. This is like the sovereignty of God blows my mind. This is how you know this played out exactly how God chose for it to. Only God would write a story like this. This is incredible. The very people he persecuted now 14 years later he's ministering to and helping. And as he's there at the church of Antioch, he's, he's ministering with Barnabas, and it says that they decided to go to Jerusalem because of a revelation. He mentions a revelation here in, in uh, Galatians chapter 2. We went because of a revelation. It was set before us. Something was unveiled. Something, something was prophesied that instructed us to go to Jerusalem. Well, if you go read in Acts chapter 11, here's your homework text. I'm going to have you do a little work in addition to what I'm preaching here. In Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30, that's your homework text, Acts 11, 27 through 30. You'll see that in Antioch, there's a prophet named Agabus. Agabus prophesies that there's going to be a famine in Jerusalem, and we need to help them prepare and, and, and thrive throughout this famine. And so Paul and Barnabas say, we'll help. So they gather up an, an offering. Paul and Barnabas gather this collection and they take it to Jerusalem. So in Galatians chapter 2, when we read, hey, we went to Jerusalem because of a revelation, it was that revelation in Acts 11. They went there to help them out because the, a famine was getting ready to hit there. And so the Christians in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, like Peter, James, and John, who were leading the Christians there, they were blessed by Paul and Barnabas showing up and giving them this offering so that they could survive that famine. And so while Paul's there, he's like, hey, while I'm here, while I have your attention, I'm going to set before you the gospel that I've been proclaiming to the Gentiles. 
Because I know that none of you apostles have, have mentored me or shepherded me. I've never showed up to any of your Bible studies. I've never been taught by you. Jesus taught me just like he taught you guys. So I just want to sit down and, and I want to tell you everything I've been preaching. And I want to hear everything you're preaching. And so they have this discussion about doctrine and theology to make sure they're matching up. And he, he, Paul tells us he did this to make sure that he was not running or had not run in vain. Can you imagine how devastating it would be after 14 years of ministry, 14 years of confidence, knowing that other apostles are doing the same thing that you are, but you're not in contact with them? Can you imagine how defeating it would be to finally, 14 years later, meet up with the apostles and find out they're preaching something different than you? That would be devastating. So Paul's like, I, just want, I know this is like an issue amongst Christians. I just want to make sure it's not an issue amongst us. Let me, let me tell you about this gospel that I've been preaching. And so he's, he's making sure that they're on the same page, and specifically with the issue of circumcision. circumcision. And so, uh, again, I'll say this again this week. I, I'm not going to get into detail what circumcision is. You can talk to your parents, kiddos, or you can roll the dice and Google it. I don't know. I, I'm not, I, I told you I was scarred at a youth event explaining that. I'm not doing it again. I'm scarred. The kids are scarred, but I'm scarred. Okay. So Paul, he, he wants the Galatians to know, hey, I had Titus with me when we were talking about this issue of circumcision. Look in verse 3 here. He says, let me find verse 3, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Nobody had more writing on this conversation than Titus, did they? <laughs> like, can you imagine Titus sitting in the room? Paul's like, hey, guys, well, I got you here. I want to talk to you about the issue of circumcision. You can imagine like a bead of sweat is rolling down Titus' face, like sitting there with his legs crossed, <laughs> silently praying. Oh, Lord, please. I know Christians don't all agree on this. Please, oh, that your apostles would agree on this. He's Greek. He's not Jewish. Titus is a convert from the Antioch ministry. He's not a Jew. He's not circumcised. Yes, he's a Christian, and he's a grown man, and this is a big deal to him. His, his belief was in Christ alone, and he believed that that was enough, and that's what Paul was teaching him. Therefore, he never bothered to get circumcised. So Peter, Paul, James, and John, pretty influential guys, are sitting in a circle in a room, privately discussing this matter. Titus is there. I wonder if, like, Peter's sword's there. <laughs> you know, we know that it's sharp enough to hack off a guy's ear. I mean, he must sharpen that thing all the time. Was that in the corner of the room, and was Titus, like, looking at that and looking at Peter, and, oh, man, I hope this goes well. Well, it did go well. Titus was not forced uh, to be circumcised. I bet, you, I bet you Titus after that day was like, you know what, guys? I'm going to buy you a round of wine. We're gonna, I, I'm really happy how this all panned out today. But there was still opposition in the church. It's important to know this. Yes, the apostles agreed. But not all of their followers did. Just like today. Right? We have a lot of people who say they're Christians. Some believe in a gospel of grace and some don't. So just like today, back then, they had a church in which some people were believing this gospel of grace in Jerusalem. Other Christians there were not believing in that gospel of grace. And again, it's the same today. We, we disagree on stuff. We disagree on stuff. The Bible doesn't disagree with itself. Right? This happens all the time. When you, when you talk about different issues and different topics that pop up or points of debate, 
What, ha- what seems to happen a lot of times is people like to uh, cherry-pick verses or, or, or even sentence fragments out of the verse <laughs> and, and, and use that as a proof text to prove their point. And, and they take it out of context. And, and when you take a sentence or a partial part of a sentence out of the Bible as a proof text, you can make the Bible say practically anything that you want. You can make it say just about anything. You can justify just about anything. And so that, that's what people were doing then, just like they do today. They were taking just fragments of what the apostles would say and what they would teach, and then they would come up with like new teachings or things that the Bible doesn't agree with. So again, it's, it's our duty. Like, I feel obligated as a, as a believer. If, if there is a division in Christianity, I want to take the side of the apostles because I want to be on the side of the Christian faith. I want to believe in the one gospel that there actually is. That's what I want to do as a believer. Can I do this perfectly? No. Do I need the Holy Spirit in order to have success in doing this? Absolutely. Am I going to stumble along the way? Am I going to get some things right and some things wrong occasionally? Sure. Am I going to change my mind over time about certain things? Hopefully. Hopefully, because I don't have it all right. And I need to study this the rest of my life and constantly be refined by it. And constantly be open and willing and spirit-led to change my mind. That is what repentance is means we sometimes we just minimize repentance to just this uh behavior modification i want to repent so i'm going to stop doing this okay well yes that is happens as a result of you changing your mind about something so if you really want to change your mind about something we need to prayerfully study god's word prayerfully ask for the spirit of god to work in our hearts and minds When we are young, we should be changing our minds. When we're old, we should be changing our minds. We should always be changing our minds. I don't care what your age is in here. We want to always be willing and open and and filled with hope that we can, by the grace of God, change our minds to adhere to what Scripture says so that we we can promote unity in the church. You know, some people, they get so rigid and so stuck on what they believe that it doesn't matter what Bible, the Bible says anymore. They don't even know why they believe what they believe. It's just the way they were brought up and what they think, and they just refuse to change their mind about anything. And that's such a bad place to be. It's such a bad place to be. And sometimes those people end up being the most divisive people in the Christian church. Because we have all of these things factoring into what we believe, right? You have what your parents believe. You have what your grandparents believe. You have what your church culture believes. You have what our, uh, our, our country's Christian culture believes. And all of these things can be a swirling mess over history and time. And so Christians, throughout all of that swirling mess... The genuine Christians are the ones who adhere to Scripture. They keep, they keep coming back and reforming what they believe by the Word of God. I want to be that type of Christian, and that's the kind of Christian I want to promote in this church, because I want there to be unity. If we just get, keep getting pushed around by the waves of culture and time, Christianity is going to be all over the place, believing all sorts of different things all the time. It's always going to be changing. You can never fully grab onto it at all because it's always moving you can't ever hit the target but this target doesn't move it's stationary by the grace of God and we want to go to it and learn and so there was opposition in the Jerusalem church just like there's opposition to the gospel today and Paul's telling about it telling us about it here when he visited Jerusalem he's like oh yeah we ran into people 
We ran into people who disagreed with my gospel of grace. It wasn't the apostles. It was the other Christians there. And so here, uh, we'll, we'll pick back up in verses 4 through 5, taking a couple verses at a time, because this is run-on, sentence, city. All right? Verses 4 through 5. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them... We did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So false brothers, they were spying out their freedom. What does that mean? Well, were they spying on the conversation? Were they overhearing things? Were they sneaking into these, these meetings amongst the apostles to, to get little sound bites and things like that and, and, and discover that it was an issue? Or did they, you know, were they changing in the same locker room as Titus? And they're like, oh, hey, wait a second. I don't, like, is that what they mean by spy out? I don't know, <laughs> you know. Uh, but they, they were noticing uh, there was a difference with Titus. This is a Greek, and oh, hey, I was bathing in the river, noticed Titus down the shore, and something ain't right. You know, his, it's not the same. So Paul's like, I'm, I'm sorry, what? You, you guys gonna make it? You guys want to talk about this? You want to talk about Titus? You want to talk about why he's different? You know, Titus is over there, like, no, please, let's not bring this up. I just want to go back to Antioch. You know, I imagine that's the, the feeling Titus has in this moment. Paul's like, no, we're gonna talk about it, Titus. So zip it. He says, we didn't yield to them for a minute. We didn't submit to their opposition even for a second, because the gospel's at stake there. The gospel's at stake. If we would have given in even for a moment and act like somebody's got to be circumcised and in order to be saved, we have to add something to what Jesus did, we'd lose the gospel if we did that. You notice he calls them false brethren. He doesn't call them confused Christians. He doesn't call them um, uneducated sinners. He calls them false brothers because they were actively fighting against this gospel of grace. That's like, if you think I'm harsh sometimes, if you think I'm mean sometimes, and you haven't been reading a lot of Paul, you know, Paul's like, this is the gospel of grace. We don't add anything, certainly not our circumcision. And, and, and listen to how he talks about it. He says, here we are, we are free in Christ. We're sharing this, this grace, the salvation of grace that, that people are completely and fully accepted and saved by God because of something he did. And here comes these false brothers trying to put us back into slavery. He talks about it like we're slaves if we think we can add something to the works of Jesus in order to be saved. You're a slave if you believe that. They're trying to enslave you back to the law. You're enslaved to the concept of having to be perfect before God. Good luck in slavery can you imagine trying to live up to the law to prove that you're good enough to God? Can you imagine having to do something in your life good enough to be accepted by a completely holy and perfect God? Paul describes that notion as slavery. But if you believe in the gospel of grace, you are freed from that slavery. We are freed from having to be perfect. What a relief. Don't you... I, I get a chuckle at it every time. Christians, they just think they're perfect. They just think you're better. No, that's the exact opposite of what we believe. 
what a relief it is that we don't have to be perfect. It would be slavery to think that I'd have to be perfect. That's what Paul preached. That's what Peter preached. That's what John preached. That's what James preached. That's what they all preached. Because there's only one gospel. And we need to adhere to this gospel of grace. Let's keep going through 6 through 10. Hang with me. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through my, me for mine to the Gentiles, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that the grace of God, uh, grace had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Did you catch all that? The apostles were in all, they, they were in agreement. They all sat down, Peter, James, and John, and Paul, and you know what they added to Paul's gospel? When, when Paul has all his notes out and he's talking about everything he's been preaching and, and Tarsus, everything he's been preaching, and Antioch and all these different churches he's traveling to, here's everything I've been talking about, guys. When Peter, James, and John met with him and talked through this and, 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 and shared what they've been teaching, Peter, James, and John, they didn't add anything. There was nothing to add. You got it right. The, this message of grace that you're preaching, it's sufficient. Nobody said, well, you know, but when you're going to these Gentiles, you know, that's great that you're preaching that, and yes, but, but when you go to these Gentiles, you've got to tell them to do this in addition to that. There was none of that talk. That never happened. That's Paul's point. None of that was even part of the conversation. All of this conversation was affirmation. They were like, well, clearly the gospel of grace is what saved Paul. There's no other way to even explain how he's a Christian today. It's grace alone. Grace is the only thing that makes sense in his life, and clearly the Holy Spirit is with him as he preaches to these Gentiles and shares this gospel with them. Clearly it's the same Holy Spirit-empowered ministry that Peter's doing to the circumcised. All of these miraculous things are confirming this message is true in Peter's ministry, and all of these miraculous things are happening in Paul's ministry in the same exact way. So yes, these are both Holy Spirit-filled ministry preaching the one gospel that is a gospel of grace, that you don't have to add a single thing to the works of Christ. And that's why... After this meeting, Peter, James, and John, they extended the hand of fellowship, it says, to Paul and Barnabas. Go team. Let's all stack hands right here. We're all in agreement, and go. The only instruction they gave to, to Paul and Barnabas was, hey, guys, just remember the poor. Paul's like, that's my very favorite thing to do. That's why he's in Jerusalem, remember? Because they're going to be poor because the famine's coming. <laughs> but, but they're bringing an offering to help them. He's already doing the very thing that they were encouraging them to do. So the gospel of grace, this is something that brings freedom. It's devotion to thinking that you have to do a work in order to be loved by God that is slavery. Isn't it so tempting, though, to think that just the opposite? It's no wonder that religious people are the ones who attack this because I can feel, I can feel the inclination 
to want to make a stand against this gospel of grace. I want to believe that I have something in me that's from me, that can do something to make God love me, that I can have my fate in my hands and I'm not going to trust anybody with it, not even Jesus. I'm so, I'm so inclined in my sinful heart to think I can be safe based on some good work in my life. I'm so tempted to think I can look at my life and think, look what all I've done. Look what all I've been a part of. I know God loves me. But that would be rejecting the gospel. And I have to read the Bible to reject that inclination. And honestly, the more I think about it and the more that Scripture provokes me to really think about the implications of that, I'm so relieved that it's a gospel of grace. I am so relieved. What a relief. Have you ever tried to be perfect? Man, I'm super bad at it. <laughs> I've tried to be good, and I can't. I can't consistently do it. I'm so relieved that my performance does not play in to God's affection for me. I'm so relieved that my performance does not factor in to his acceptance of me. So tempting to think just the opposite, but when you really think about it, it's a huge relief. You do not want to have to live up to his holiness. If you, if you think you want to, you've underestimated how holy he truly is. You've underestimated his holiness and you've overestimated your capability to be holy. You cannot, you can't fill that gap. That, that gap, that chasm is too, too big to overcome. You can't do it. It takes Jesus, the God-man, to do this for us. He alone is what solves this issue of justification before God. He alone is who we put our hope in. It's his works alone that we put faith in. And they were given, us, given to us by grace. You know, when you think about the implications of that concept, too, don't you have more questions? I mentioned last week, like, you probably are going to have more questions when you think about how we are saved by grace alone. You start to come up with questions like this. Well, then, what's it matter if I'm good or not? Why should I even try to be good? What's it matter if I sin or if I'm holy? Can't I just live any way that I want since Jesus was good for me? What's it even matter if I pursue this life of holiness? You know, when people start asking questions like that, um, I, I, I get a little excited because those are the right questions. If you're asking those sorts of questions, you understand what grace is. If you start asking questions like that, I know that you understand the magnitude of the type of grace the Bible is talking about. So you're starting to ask the right questions. Now you're starting to ask those questions because you're trying to figure it all out and it doesn't make sense. But that is the right, that's the right grouping of questions that tells me you understand grace alone and the implications of it. If my works don't factor into my salvation, what do my works matter? Well, good preachers anticipate questions and answer them in their sermons. And that's what Paul does. When you read these different epistles of Paul. He answers those exact questions over and over and over. The Bible is filled with answers to those questions. Pick any letter that Paul wrote. He's going to be answering that question. But he's not answering that question in chapter 2. We're going to get there. 
Uh, we're only in chapter two and there's a long way to go. But if you're asking those types of questions, I feel like I win. Because every time I get up here and preach, I want to present to you a biblical concept. And when you're presented with biblical concept and you really put thought into it, you come up with questions. Because it's not easy. This life is complex. So that's the thing about the Bible, you know, it's that the, con- the overall concepts are the easiest things in the world to understand. But when you start to get into the weeds, there's a lot of questions in there that you start coming up with. And Paul is your man. Paul's who you want to be studying because he's got the answers to those questions. And we're going to cover those things as we continue through Galatians. And you can read ahead and read some of his other letters too. It's a tremendous blessing. But let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, again, I thank you so much for this defense of your gospel. We need to read and study a defense of your gospel. We get mixed up in what we believe. We, we get caught up in arguments and debates, and we get sometimes uh, coerced onto sides that disagree with your word, and I know I have. And Lord, the only way back is your word. The only way back is repentance. It's the changing of our minds through the reading of your word empowered by your spirit. And so Lord, I pray that all of us, as we journey through this faith together at this church, regardless of our age, regardless of our experiences, Lord, that we would be blessed by your grace to be able to repent. Lord, that we can all collectively be on this pursuit of understanding salvation rightly so that we can live in it rightly. Lord, our works are critical. Man, they're so important. Righteousness, holiness, purity, all. Lord, we want to pursue those things. We are right and good to do so. Help us, Lord, as we study salvation to see how those things factor into how we live and why they matter. Help us to not give up on a right understanding of salvation from one quick question that we don't understand. But, Lord, help us to slowly and purposefully marinate in the truth that you have given us We can trust in you to come to the right conclusion, Lord, and we want to do this all to your glory. So so bless us in this pursuit in Galatians and, and bless our church having studied it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.